Hello and welcome to episode 57 of A Positive Podcast. A Positive Podcast is powered by OK Clarity. More about them later in the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Tenyad. The time of engagement should be the happiest time in a kala, a bride's life. Yet the lack of resources to pay for her beautiful beginnings can turn a dream into a big stress. Ten Yad is an organization established to ease the family's burden so that nothing gets in the way of Akala assuming her exalted role in the chain of Jewish history. When you support Ten Yad, you are part of this everlasting chain, part of the pillars supporting the eternal Binyan Adiyad that will usher in the days of Mashiach. When a bride turns to Ten Yad for help, she is treated with utmost respect and service in absolute discretion. Ten Yad helps Kalas in a variety of ways. They have beautiful gown showroom in New York from which they lend out stunning dresses and bridal accessories to brides at no cost. They also provide a home starter package that contains many essentials that new couples can use to set up their home. It is set up as an elegant boutique in which the Kala can shop for her household needs, selecting from the many designs and styles elegantly displayed on the shelves. A Kala on her wedding day is compared to a queen, and Tenyad helps her walk down the aisle feeling like royalty. Tenyad's annual auction fundraiser is going to be live very soon. You can choose from an array of luxury, Cartier watches, a Tesla, thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, vacations, silver, and more. It's a win-win. You can win luxury prizes while helping young couples build their home in the most dignified ways. You can buy your tickets at tenyad.org, and you can also watch their phenomenal show on October 29th. Their website will be launching soon. Thank you, Tenyad for being our sponsor. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or celebrate an upcoming special occasion, or just because you appreciate what we're doing here, please reach out to my website, apositivecoach.com or email me at razel at jewishpeabody.com. In addition, if you're curious to hear more about positive psychology-based life coaching and to see if it's a fit for you, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com to set up your free consultation. So let's get into today's episode, episode 57, titled Anxiously Acing School, Insights from an Educator and a Therapist. So before we get into it, I want to just say that we are speaking with an educator who's not a professional, and we also have a conversation going on with a therapist. I sent out a survey to teens um, earlier in August, asking them how they would rate their school-related levels of stress and anxiety, just to kind of give us a perspective from their teens' point of view, how they're finding school and what their experience is like. And the response was quite interesting. And I wanted to share with all of you before we begin. So just so people know that the answers for that question, how would you rate your school-related level of stress and anxiety, was 22% said very high, 28 said high, and 28% said average. The rest obviously did not feel that they were struggling with anxiety. So after going through all the responses, here's some of the responses that I got from the students, what they felt would be the most helpful for them to kind of be able to deal with their own anxiety. And this was some of their responses. Okay, so they felt that there should be, teachers should be communicating with each other so that there's less tests happening at the same time, that teachers should put less pressure on the students and not have a short period of time from when the assignment is assigned to when their date that they need to send it in. They felt that they needed to have more study classes, that they should have a class designated just for study hall, 
that that would be really helpful, where there could be teachers there helping them with their skills. They also felt like they wanted to learn more how to be able to deal with and learn with learn from a text directly instead of having to spit back information that they would forget immediately. They felt that there should be um, more movement going on in the classroom where they actually are not sitting behind the desk all day. They felt that there should be a little bit more respect between the teachers and the students. And they felt that they should have less homework and be able to have time where they could have the ability to decompress from the day and they could exercise and do other things and not just be cramming for the next day. They also felt that the way that the material was being taught did not have hold enough interest for them. Obviously, many teachers that they connected with, they enjoyed their classes, but on a whole, this was something that they shared. And they felt that teachers should be taking into account how the, how the student is showing up and how they're interacting in participation in class, not just how they're doing on a test. So that's just a little bit from the student's point of view. Obviously, um, we're going to hear now from an educator and a therapist. And um, we really delve into the, the issues of school-related anxiety. And we speak with Mrs. Esty Kogel, who is a seasoned teacher. She's a math teacher. And we also have a conversation, or I should say I have a conversation with a compassionate person. She's a therapist, um, Catherine Beatty, a family a friend of mine as well that I really trust her opinion. And together, um, at first, the first part of the conversation is with Mrs. Esty Kogel. The second part is with the therapist. And we really discuss the various facets of anxiety that students may encounter during their educational journey and provide, she provides um, valuable insights <clears throat> into recognizing, addressing, and alleviating these challenges. And I think that teachers, parents, educators, even teens will find something interesting and some, learn something from today's episode. So I invite you to sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. So welcome to a positive podcast. Today I have a, the distinct privilege and honor to have Mrs. Esty Kugel on a positive podcast and I'm very excited about it. Esty and I met at a Sushi Tokyo the other day and we started a conversation and I was very um, intrigued to continue the conversation. I said, you know what, actually, I think this is going to make a great podcast discussion conversation. And I think that um, people will find this very enlightening and helpful. So Esty, if you don't mind to briefly introduce yourself and describe your experience in the education field and how it, and how it has shaped your perspective on the challenges that students face today. And what what kind of led you to reflect on this issue, specifically with regard to mental health and anxiety in students within the educational system? So I gave you two questions there, but let's start with introducing yep. yourself. Okay, so I'm first and foremost a wife, a daughter, a sister, a mother of children and grandchildren, Kanai Nahara, and I am a teacher. I teach um, math to 11th grade students and I tutor math privately. And actually, it was the private tutoring that got me into um, what I do and how I was aware of students' anxiety. And you could imagine that when it comes to math, there are a lot of anxious students. Um, 
Students would come hoping I would just help them pass, quote unquote, just get me to the finish line. First of all, the finish line is so thin, it's not a good place to aim for, you know, just passing because a 64 is not passing and a 66 is. So who wants to aim for just a 65? But more importantly than that, I saw that not only could I, could I help them pass, I could make their math a much better experience with real understanding, with better skills, with lots of patience and lots of practice. And I saw the anxiety dissipate. A lot of anxiety dissipate with skills and understanding, skills and understanding. And I was like, okay, well, when I go into the classroom, that's what I have to do. I have to be understanding, make them understand, and give them skills. And, Rachel, I have to tell you, I make them practice. I want to tell you a funny story. I don't know if people who will listen to this know that there are leading places in the world for mathematics. One of them is Singapore. Yes. And I went to visit Singapore when my son was on Shlichus there. And I made a point of speaking to a high school class. And uh, in Singapore, you graduate high school with not only Algebra 2 under your belt, but pre-calc, Calc 1, and Calc 2. There's no P3. There's no Title 1. There's no other track for other kids. And I said to the students there, I said, um, so you must all love math. Like it must be a, a national trait. And they said, no, we don't. We just practice till we get it right. So they have a whole different culture there. They, they work very hard. But it also impressed on me that how much practice is needed. It's sort of like an instrument. It could be very talented, but if you don't practice, it just doesn't happen. So um, I went to the classroom about five years ago. I've been teaching in the classroom for five years. I love the girls. I love the math and I love seeing them succeed. And that's why I do what I do. Right. What I'm hearing you say is, is that what you notice dissipate their, their anxiety dissipate when they learned skills and when they started to have um, the ability to accomplish something. Yes, but also preempt that with understanding. If you don't explain it to them, then just doing it in rote does not guarantee success, and the success is what we want. The success is what tastes good. Nothing tastes as good as success. Right. So could you elaborate a little bit more on the prevalence and the manifestations of anxiety among students in, in the current educational landscape that's going on? Like when we spoke at the, when we met the other day, you, you, you mentioned an analogy about providing a baby bottle to students. Could you share this analogy with us? And could you explain how this analogy actually applies to this approach that some schools and some parents are taking when addressing their anxiety of their students? Okay. So I want to preempt that by saying I am not a mental health professional. Okay. So let's just put that out there. I can't tell you what to do when you have anxiety or when uh, your child or your spouse has anxiety. I could only see from my observations what works on the people I know and what has helped a lot of people, not always everybody. And even from my own anxiety, Rachel, 
everybody has anxiety. The question is, does it debilitate them? Can they, can they overcome it with tools that they are given? So how did it manifest itself? Um, we're talking about school-related anxiety here. So since I teach in a fairly large school, we have um, a large spectrum of students, okay? We have strong students for, her, for whom classes are relatively easy. Some are stronger in math, some are stronger in other things. Some are strong just across the board. We have determined students that work very hard. We have weaker students that struggle if they care or don't bother if they can't. But anxiety doesn't really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't discriminate. Yes. Smart girls, smart girls can also have anxiety. Okay. A strong student can still get anxious and weaker students are more prone to anxiety. Um, and it manifests itself in the regular ways that you would see it, especially in teams, headaches, stomach aches, um, nausea, fearfulness, and a big one, fatigue, where they just like give up and they're ready to go to sleep and say, I'm checking out. So you asked me a few questions in one. You asked me how I see the anxiety. What was the example I wanted to give and how it manifests itself? So let me tell you about the example. When one of my children, and I don't remember whom, was around 18 months old, I took him to the pediatrician and I complained that all he wanted to eat, quote unquote, was bottles, baby bottles. So he would have like, you know, a baby would have four or five bottles a day. He only wanted bottles. Maybe he wasn't quite 18 months old. I don't remember. But I said to the pediatrician, he does not eat solids. And the pediatrician turned to me and said, Esty, if I gave you three or four milkshakes a day, would you eat food? No, I'd be stuffed from those milkshakes. Well, he says, a bottle for a baby is like a milkshake. Your baby is not hungry, but he is malnourished. So stop giving the bottles. He will eat the food and your baby will be nourished properly. So this is something that we spoke about when we met on Sunday, that, that if we keep on giving bottles because we want to mollify our children, we want to, we want to calm them down right then, we're doing them a one-second gratification and a long-term, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Rachel? Injustice. <laughs> yes. Injustice. We are, we're feeding them the wrong food. And life just doesn't get easy. Life is full of challenges. The point is knowing how to use tools to, to overcome them. You know, in class, I tell my students often, algebra is really all about manipulation. It, you become like a plumber. You have to know when to take out your wrench and when to take out your whatever, hammer or nails, whatever you're doing. Now, plumbers don't use hammers and nails, carpenters. Okay, so a saw, of a, a hammer, a nail. What are you going to use? A clamp. What are you going to use to solve this problem? You, my job is to put all those tools at their disposal, not to make the job easy, but to give them the tools to do it. 
Right. Yes, we could start off with easier problems and go to harder problems. And, you know, that's actually what they do in Singapore to address the strong students that they give them harder things. The Positive Podcast is brought to you by OKClarity.com. OKClarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find an excellent therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist. And it's completely free for you to use. OKClarity.com's professionals are vetted, and they have extensive experience working with the Jewish community. Yes, you can even find me there, because I'm listed as a coach. If you're in the market for a therapist, a coach, a nutritionist, a psychiatrist, or the like, you want to check them out. If you don't find what you're looking for, they have a concierge service where you complete a short form and they will personally match you with someone. Just an important side note, if you are a wellness professional, I highly recommend joining their directory. Their team is amazing and I've received referrals from their platform and OK Clarity has an amazing WhatsApp status with over 8,000 obsessed followers. And yes, I am one of them. Their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor, so you'll laugh too. If you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. Again, that's 917-426-1495. We'll put the links to their website and their WhatsApp in the show notes so you can find those links and go ahead, smash those links. You will not regret it. And now back to our show. But what they don't do is say to the weaker ones or the ones who are struggling or the ones who are anxious, well, you don't have to do this. We'll make it easy for you. So what I'm hearing you say is that you you feel strongly that in order to help decrease anxiety within students today, you believe that by not lowering the standard or the level, but rather um, keeping it where it should be and helping and instead finding a way to give the tools to the student, keep the level where it's at and do not kind of dumb it down, but rather bring the students higher by creating, giving them more tools to get And there. then giving them the taste of success, giving them the taste of the feeling, I can do this. I never thought I'd be able to do this. I could do this. And it's not as hard as I imagined. Or once I know how to do it, it's not as hard anymore. You know, tell somebody to play the piano. It's hard. They don't know how. Teach them how to play the piano. Well, then they can play the piano. But it takes practice and determination. And that's where a lot of people lose their mojo. The, the consistency, the growth of it is hard for anxious students. You know, Um, You also said anxiety that's school-related. I do want to say that a lot of students that get anxious in school do come in with some anxiety from beforehand. Not not only, but very often. You know, kids could have anxiety from situations at home that get exacerbated from the pressures of school, right? Um, so anxiety could start from a whole different ballgame. Let's say, let's say, can I tell you another story? Yes, please. One of my sons was getting Aleph, 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 Aleph all the time. And in sixth grade, a teacher by PTA says to me, I just want you to know your son won't be getting an Aleph. I said, is he not doing the work? Is he not understanding? He says, No. He's not actually an Aleph student. So I said to him, 
um, then why have all the teachers been giving him Aleph? And he says, well, it's easier for a teacher to give an Aleph than to argue with the parents or to disappoint the child. I said, and this is not, life is not going to be a shocker to them when they realize, hey, not everything is coming to me so easily. I'm really not necessarily an Aleph student. Unfortunately, our system does this a lot. We reward kids with higher grades than they actually deserve. And the parents have expectations then of them always getting these high grades. And they're always proud to share their grade with everyone and to compare their grade, which is a terrible thing to do altogether. Another whole topic about comparing grades, comparing anything. Um, and then along comes a harder subject, a more demanding teacher, whatever it is. And all of a sudden that A is not so easy to get or it's not attainable at all. And they feel like, what's wrong with me? And by the way, parents also, you know, when, when they don't get the A, if they don't, if they get a B and they don't praise them for that B, like it would be an A, the kid feels that there's something wrong, that they're falling short with that B. They're, they're, they're causing their parents disappointment and they're causing themselves disappointment. And, and herein begins stress over school. Right. So you, you're bringing up a lot of important topics here. I want to just go back for a second to the first point that you made, which I think is really important because I, you're saying something even deeper. What I'm hearing is that one of the antidotes to anxiety or to depression or to struggle is to build resilience, right? So if somebody is having, um, if a person overcomes a challenge and has that success, like you said, it's a taste of success, it alleviates some of those sad feelings. They actually have um, feelings of happiness and joy because they've overcome a challenge. And there's nothing that's like that joy of actually overcoming something difficult and having that clarity that you lacked beforehand or the feeling of accomplishment. Yes, we were talking about upping the ante, not upping the ante, not lowering the ante. So that they actually feel, oh, I well, did it. Well, Just you're, like you're saying two separate things. You're saying one part is the fact that we are creating um, an issue by lowering the standard. You're saying you're you're saying I think we should leave the standard where it is and give more tools. That's what I'm hearing and understanding and ability to do this. But I think that there is a fine line. So if it's a student that is struggling with um, ADHD or a learning challenge or the length of the day, or there's so many variables or different teachers that are coming in at different times with different expectations with a, with a workload of many, many different tests and midterms and gemmers or whatever it may be that the school is choosing to do. That student is not only lacking tools, they are kind of in a, in a difficult position, but you're, you're saying, but well, let's give them that feeling of success. So, so people are saying, okay, let's lower the standard. And if we lower the level, then they'll have that feeling of success. But you're saying, no, that's not what's happening. They're not feeling the success. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like when we lower the standard, okay. are we not having that experience? So I wanna, I wanna take a look at other ways that things are done. For example, in New York State public schools, you don't follow your middle school friends into your next public school, high school experience. You are evaluated and 
you apply to the high schools that are relevant to you, that can address your uh, strengths and help your weaknesses. And they have so many. Imagine if everybody in New York City wanted to go to, you know, Manhattan School of Math and Science or Stuyvesant. Well, why put a kid there who can't succeed? Why? And, and when they can succeed in other places that emphasize maybe drama or creative writing. So we keep on trying to put all, we, we think our kids are all square pegs and we're trying to fit them all into round holes. And that's a problem. But also, let's say we have our school, we have what it is. There is a way for school to, I don't want to use the word modify as in lowering, but modify the curriculum so that there is, it's a streamlined curriculum. And they can also track kids in the streamlined curriculum. So let's say right now, a lot of um, the whole um, programs have their regular English, history, math, science, and language. It's the same thing every single day. But in the Hebrew programs, you can have a multitude of subjects. You could have Chomish, Navi, Suvim, Halacha, Bayez Yehudi. For those who learn Siddhis, you can have Maimarim, uh, Sichas, Tanya, in Yane Mashiach and Geula. And then when you have all of these subjects, you have a lot of stress. You don't have a lot of continuity. You have a lot of teachers. You don't develop necessarily relationships with them. They don't even know when you're absent necessarily because they're not there every day the way the English teachers are. And then there's more quizzes and more exams because all of the subjects have to be tested. And testing is another whole topic, but I don't want to go into testing today. I, I actually do want to talk. Is, I do want to speak about it for a minute because I think that's that's a piece of it. Now, within math, which is your sub, which is your subject, I understand that there's really one way. You can't be doing, um, you can't test people by using critical thinking. It's it's either you know the skill or you don't know the skill. But you know, when with regard to mamar um, and a lot of the Hebrew subjects, if there was less spitback and less memorization because really, you know, I, I I take issue and I love, and I don't want to put down any organization. I think the Chidon is a beautiful, beautiful thing, but you're basically taking a God-given talent of memorization. Someone who has the ability to memorize something easily can then go and do it. And you have students that are killing themselves working so hard just, just to get there. And we see that they're given reward, they're given awards, but really, what are we really, 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 um, celebrating in these students is their ability to memorize and spit back material to us. Now, if it was based on a critical thinking, if you gave them an idea and they had to go actually take this idea, develop it, and actually put together a an essay about it or a, a skit about it or figure out how to bring this into today's world, this halacha, how it would apply in today's life, that would be something that I I I I would appreciate more because I I think that the students out there that cannot memorize they just look at that and say, I'm not even trying. That's not what I can do. And that's the majority, in my opinion. The, the typical student has a harder time memorizing. It's the excellent, excelling student that, that is excelling that can memorize easily. So when we have a style, and I think that the style of teaching today, of, of, of testing, is based on seeing where your students are at, if they're getting the material. I think that 
we need to be actually moving towards more critical thinking. Because if you think of a student that's intelligent, you're not really able to measure their level of understanding of the material just by the fact that they memorize it or didn't memorize it. That's my little sermon. I agree a lot. I agree a lot with what you're saying, except one thing. Math is critical thinking. Okay. <laughs> okay. Math actually gives excellent critical thinking skills. What can you, what, what are you looking at? How can you look at this differently? What does it remind you of? Um, so I actually, all the time, the, the students ask me, why do we have to know this? I'm not going to do any math after this. And basically I do tell them that it, it is critical thinking. I agree with you. I think that um, test, uh, subjects that are tested by the government should be tested before the government tests them. In other words, you should be able to evaluate your students the way the government is going to evaluate your students and they should not be caught by surprise. But let's say uh, subjects, Gemmers, I, I am not an expert in the Hebrew department. Gemmers can be uh, a wonderful opportunity to learn volume, like just a lot at the same time. But again, for those girls who don't mean retain it, it's just a huge effort for for almost no gain. So remember I don't remember I anything. I don't, I don't remember one thing that I learned in any of those classes that I had to memorize things for, for those kind of tests. I, I don't remember one thing. I know that I had a camera on 10 program of Tanya. I can't remember one one of them. When I learned Tanya, I'm like, I did learn this at some point. How come I don't even remember this? So I for me personally, I see that with myself and with my with my children, I don't see the value in it. But I, I'm, and I'm sure there's some value because it's being done somewhere. But there's so many. See, this is what this is what I'm getting at. There are so many moving parts to this. The length of the day, the day, the school day doesn't end till five o'clock in some schools. A lot of Jewish high schools have this. Um, many of the students are coming out when it's dark already outside. There's very little movement. There's very little actual movement. Um, there isn't many study halls in these classes where they actually have teachers there that are there with skills. This is like a study hall. You can study math. We have teachers here to help you that will study Chumash. You could have a teacher here to help you with that. These different things are, I'm, and I'm like you said, smaller schools have maybe more of these things going on for those students that need more of that assistance. But I'm saying, generally speaking, just across the board, the way we teach, the way we test, the way we're, the, this whole method to me doesn't seem to be working for the average student. And I could be wrong. I mean, it's just, just the feeling I have. Um, I don't want to say the average students. I don't even believe there's such a thing as an average student. You know, a student, I had a student who came from me for math tutoring. She brought along her notebook and I, she, I, she happened to open it. And I looked at it and I said, what is this? She said, this is how I take notes in history. She draws the picture. It is all one big comic book, her wow. notebook. So beautiful. And she knows everything. And it says little words inside and dates and like little clouds of somebody saying something. And it became, this is the way she made it visual and, and relatable and memorable to herself. But if you would have looked at her in math, you would have said very poor student and maybe other subjects as well. And then you look at this and you say, oh my gosh, this student is brilliant. So what is average? Okay, what is average? You and I know that there are students who don't 
do well in math who are brilliant in writing. So what is average? I don't know what that word means. What I do know is that we can track students. I also want to bring up something from earlier on, and this doesn't just apply to math, but it does apply to math as well. That didn't make much sense. It applies to a lot of things. Is that a lot of subjects depend on better foundational learning, which depends on really good teachers. Teachers that are instilling love and skills at the same time. So that when they move forward, they have something to build upon. Why do so many students struggle with math? Well, because I don't say there's bad math students. I say there are bad math teachers. Okay, and you know what else is the problem in math? You miss a week of school because you either went on vacation or you had the flu. That's like a pothole in the road. In the road. Every time you're going to go over that pothole, you're going to fall into it because you miss that foundational learning. Unless you are smart enough to catch up or a parent is responsible enough to make sure that the child learns it before they go away. I have students in my class who come to me and say, I have to go away from my, my brother's bar mitzvah. I say, here's the number of somebody. They'll teach you the material you're going to miss beforehand. That is a responsible thing to do. So, but what if they have the flu? Okay, they can't do it beforehand. They have to get better and they have to catch up. But if they think that they can leave it out, it comes back to haunt them. Right. And that's for what you said, the average students, you know? Right. They're students who get things quickly and, you know. So how do we measure success? That's another question. You, you, you brought something up that was important before. Like you said, parents, when they're younger, are, you know, giving them positive feedback for getting A's. And then they're getting A's that they may not be necessarily earning. So it's a false sense of accomplishment. And then when they have a challenging subject, they don't, they don't get the A, they get the B. But the question is, is I think, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. If a parent is um, giving positive feedback for the actual amount of effort that's being placed, I think that's what we need to be putting the the, the emphasis on. Like how much effort is a, this student putting into the topic? If they're putting in a lot of effort, then, you know, they need praise and be reward. Praise for that. Absolutely. Um, it takes a really on the ball special parent to be cognizant the whole time of what their child's responsibility in school is and how well they are finishing, they're accomplishing it, even in a younger grade and Kalvachomer in an older grade. Okay? Do you, very often a parent will say to a child, Did you do your homework? And the child will say yes. And the, and the parent will say, great. And they'll maybe sign the chart that says, you know, that, that they did their homework. But did they actually look what the homework is? Do they know what they're actually learning? And I'm not blaming the parent, they're busy. They have maybe a, a job and a responsibilities and more than one child. It's a lot to know. What is your child learning? And are they keeping up? And are they feeling success with what they're learning? So... When does the problem arise? 
long after it started. It doesn't happen, you know, all of a sudden. There's no such a thing as like some somebody suddenly has a baby. Okay? There's nine months of pregnancy first. So the same thing is with with issues that are coming in school. They don't suddenly happen. They are happening and we're missing the cues. And a teacher could also be missing the cues. Right. You know, a teacher has 20, 25 kids, maybe more in a classroom. It's hard to keep track of everybody's um, diligence. Yes. Right? Right. So, so, so let's talk a little bit the about... The problem happens later. The problem that is that happens, it did not just happen. It happened for a while, and we're only picking up on it now. Right. So we have to be more cognizant and actually be more attuned and actually see what's really happening before the, the student gets too far ahead where it becomes unmanageable. Let's take let's take a moment here. So I I hear your your take on not lowering the standard. I hear this idea. I feel like, you know, this is this is actually it's interesting. I was was watching a video clip from Viktor Frankl today, and he was talking about this idea um, about pilots. Pilots, airplane pilots, airplane pilots. That's it's called crabbing, and when a plane is trying to um, land, or in the there's high winds or wind tail or something, they have to, and they're trying to get from point A to point B. Sometimes they have to shoot for let's say higher, a higher level, and then they actually land where they need to land. Like you know, coming, you know, mm -hmm. and it's called crabbing. They overshoot, they overshoot their destination. Yeah, something to that effect. So, um, and he and he said this line that. If we take man as he is, we make him worse. But if we take man as he should be, we make him capable of becoming what he can be. Meaning we should overestimate what somebody can actually accomplish and actually believe it in, believe them and believe that they're capable of it. And then they will actually come to a place that's actually like where they really need to be. Exactly. That's my, actually that's, you're telling the story of my, one of my most successful tutoring uh, experiences. She came to me, she said, I want a 65. And I learned with her two or three times. And I said, okay, we're not aiming for a 65. She got really scared. She thought she can't do it. I said, we're going to aim for a 90. She looked at me like, well, who do you think I am? Einstein? I can't do that. And I said, yeah, I think you can. And I think you will. And she did. But I wouldn't say it necessarily to everyone. Maybe another student that say aim for the 80. But in her mind, I had to tell her, we're going farther than where you think. We're going to aim higher. We're going to aim better. And then we're going to land for sure where we need to land or maybe even better. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a fine line because, again, we, we want to be cognizant of the fact that there are students that struggle with anxiety so you want to be careful but what we're really coming to here is that actually we should be aiming for higher than what they think they can and actually hold them in a positive regard for ourselves like actually hold those students mm -hmm. hold those those children of ours and say they actually could do it they may not see themselves but if we have in that other words, we're believing in them yeah we're telling them we believe in you and they're the ones who are doubting belief in themselves and when we affirm that by lowering the standards well, we're, we're not giving them tools, we're disabling them. 
I hear that. I think you make a fair case with regard to that. So let's, so let's, okay. So now that we know that this isn't, you know, an issue that we should really not be lowering the standards, though I will say there, I want to just push back on one thing. There are certain subjects that I feel like it's okay that, that we've lowered our standards on with regard to, um, there's a, you know, in a many uh, schools like memorization of basic ideas, Claudius or Bikias, whatever they call it, which is an important thing. You know, we want to have basic Jewish knowledge, but it's again, it's a spit back material that's being done after school hours, after a full day of school, they have to also memorize and then come back to school with this on top of the other homework they have. So for me, I don't know, I feel like get, doing away with certain the, of these kind of curriculum, I don't, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not so against. I just want to say that for me personally. I hear you. I hear you. Um, perhaps if we beefed up education from early on, it wouldn't A, feel so heavy a load, and B, maybe the load would be lighter, but we start the problem begins pretty early. Yeah. So so we discussed this, um, you know, the idea that, we should not be lowering the standards, but we should rather be giving the students more tools. Let's talk about some practical solutions for parents or for educators that you you know that we could think of. You know, um, not that you're an expert or not an expert, but we're having a conversation here on this topic. Could you share some suggestions or ideas that you think parents could be doing to help support their child or help foster more resilience in their child? Right? What kind of what can they be doing to help manage their anxiety and have a more holistic approach to their child's personal development and their ability to do well and flourish in school? So I don't, again, like you said, we're both not, men, I, I'm not a mental health professional. You're a life coach with experience. I'm not <laughs> Okay. Okay. But there's a lot to do at home and in an attitude at home that fosters better habits across the board that will support an anxious child and alleviate actually anxiety. And first of all, those come even before, before school, frankly. Exercise, exercise. You said the kids barely move, right? They, yeah. they don't move a lot from nine to five, eight to five. They're not moving enough, 100%. But the question is, when the parents have opportunity with them, are they moving there? Are they joining a Zumba class or a yoga class or, or running? Can fathers take their daughters for late night walks? It would be so nice to see that. It would be safer for the girls, healthier for the dads, a bonding thing. Another thing, um, you know, for example, one of the things I do with my students is I have a knitting club. And I teach them how to knit. And I think that working with your hands, like crafts, knitting, weaving, sewing, crocheting, gardening, pottery, anything that is tactile is extremely beneficial in lowering uh, anxiety and increasing the hormones that make you calmer and happier playing music. And I don't mean you have to become a virtuoso. I mean, buying a few guitars and learning a few chords and playing together and having fun, much more organic fun than a video game, a telephone. And by the way, like I often see parents and I was guilty of that myself. 
who say, okay, do this, and then you can watch a video. No. Do that, and then let's all go for a walk. Why are we saying the video is the prize when the video is causing the sickness? It creates a shortness of um, concentration, the constant changing of the, of the story that the video provides is what's so um, addictive to them. Everything is always new. And that's why sitting in a class becomes really, really tedious because nothing is changing. The view is not changing. The voice is not changing. Um, you know what we didn't touch on at all, Razel, is yeah. the social pressure and the social media. Yeah. Well, there's two yeah. parts. There, there's two parts. I think parents know, I think everyone at this point knows this. Like this is not, no one's going to listen. It's like, oh, I never realized that my iPad that my child's playing on is a problem for them. Like we all know this. I mean, it's, we, we all hear it. We all know it. We're all trying our best to keep ourselves off device as much as possible. Our children, we need to be work hard, working harder, but many, many of us are aware of this. There's also that part about social anxiety where there's fitting in. And having that, you know, a, a place that you feel comfortable with, a group of friends that you feel connected with, that is, you know, a big piece of anxiety that teens are struggling with today as well. That's yeah. a huge piece of it. But it's really exacerbated by social media. Really, really exacerbated. Because what, what they struggle with, if they're, if they're struggling with social situations like school, it doesn't end after school because the phone... Is not if they see a window into who's saying what, when, who's going where, when, and they might not even be included. And that's really, really stressful. And so, the, yeah, that's really, really a problem. And the sooner, sooner the kids understand it. And I think, again, here's what I want to tell you understanding leads to better habits and skills. When, if the kids do not really understand what social media is doing to them, how could you take it away from them? They're saying, no, it's not, it's not a problem. It's not. So don't take it away from them. Take it away from them for an hour during dinner. Or at 10 o'clock, all phones go into a basket and alarm clocks are used instead of the alarm clock on the phone. Make it fun, not punishable. It's not, we're not punishing the kids. We're not taking away their candy. We're giving them better, better food. And by the way, you also said holistic approaches. I am not prescribing anything here, but there are herbs, homeopathic remedies, and stuff like massage that can lower anxiety. That are not, homeopathic remedies are not even expensive. Okay. And there are over-the-counter ones that are helpful that I myself, when I took exams for my math degree, I was taking this remedy with me, was sitting on my desk while I was taking the exams. Every 10 minutes, I was dropping some into my mouth and it helped. It got me through it. But let's, you know, let's think about ways that we can address it positively and um, and not disempowering them, empower them. When you tell your kid who's anxious, it's okay, you could stay home from school today, you are handicapping them. 
it feels great for that moment. It just is a terrible, terrible solution. I do want to give a caveat to that, that there are children that are dealing with, you know, extreme anxiety and extreme mental health challenges. And in some cases, they need to be pulled from the classroom or from school. There's room for that, but we're not talking about that student. We're talking about a kid wakes up. He says, my stomach hurts. I don't want to go to school. I'm nervous. It's not severe depression. It, this kid is not under psyche, psychiatrist care. And you know what else, Rachel, we didn't talk about is social workers in the school. We need more social workers. Our yeshivas are ill-equipped with social services for high school students for sure. And the stigma has to drop. Everybody should be able to talk to a social worker. Did we cover everything? No, this is very, this is a very good point. We need to have more, um, you know, I think the stigma has lowered a lot in our, in our yeshivas and schools, but we, there's more work to be done as well with regard to that. Um, so if you, if there was a teacher or an educator listening here and saying, okay, well, you know, just, just listening into the conversation, what would you want to tell them? I would want to tell them that they should give, um, they should give students more feedback and more feedback and more immediate feedback. What do I mean by that? Your kid is at home. You ask him to clear the table. He does it right away and he does it well. What does he get? He gets praised, right? Wow, you did that job so with so much reasons. That was really, and you did the job so well, right? When a kid takes a test and he gets his test back a month later, that is, it falls utterly flat. The kid already forgot what they studied for that test. They don't care anymore about their grade. But when you take a test and you give it back to them within a day or two, with a comment, I see how much you, how hard you worked. And this is the area where you can where you succeeded. And this is the area where I can help you succeed further. This individual feedback that happens really quickly is really, really helpful to a student. The student feels acknowledged and validated and their efforts have been noticed. Um, also, when I said to you about streamlining the subjects, you asked me what a teacher can do. A teacher cares. I really know lots and lots of caring teachers, but they're not there every day to care. I think that having what they call homeroom teachers that are there every single day is really, really important in every single grade. Because when a student is absent one day, okay, you think, okay, maybe this student didn't feel well, maybe there was some kind of family symptom, maybe some kids not absent two days, you're already you're saying to the class, where is so-and-so? Kids absent three days, you're, you, you should be emailing them, calling them, or asking students, did you check up on so-and-so? Kids have to feel that their presence in school matters, even if it's a school of hundreds of kids. If their presence doesn't matter, what do they need to be there for? No. And so that's how I feel about teachers. I think that it's really important for there, for there to be teachers that know who is there every single day and care 
And I think teachers, like I said, do care, but they're not necessarily there every day to notice. And that consistency is is important. And no matter what age, I think it's an important piece. For sure. And even in the subject, by the way, even in the subject, the consistency is important. When you read a book and then you put it down for a few days, when you pick it back up, you have to say, okay, where was I up to? Right? But if there's everyday continuity, the skills become better. Right. You, you lose less time in the classroom reviewing where, okay, where were we? Let's review where we were. Yeah, so I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned a little bit earlier was um, you said about like if a child wants to stay home and you and you keep them home, that that's really harming your child or you're doing them a disservice because there there's conflicting there's conflicting opinions on this. So I did a whole podcast on HSPs, highly sensitive people, and one of the things that I've come to realize is that because I I was a big believer of that as well, I really was. And I've come to the realization that for certain, and I'm and I'm I'm being very specific. It's not for all children, but for certain students and children, a mental health day occasionally is actually quite important, where they're actually doing something, not where they're sitting home on a device and just you know wasting their brain again. But if it's a day where they're spending with their mother or their father and they're doing something extra special just between the two of them, something that's like you like all those activities that you've mentioned, sometimes that that's the call of the hour. Okay, but Rachel, do you think that a highly sensitive person belongs in a school of 700 girls? No. That's it. We're talking here about our mainstream schools. That's why I don't know if you caught what I said earlier. We keep on trying to put everybody into the same place, thinking, oh, that worked for me, or that worked for her older sister, or that's the place to be, or a litany of other reasons. And that's not what our daughters need always. Sometimes they need a place that's really, really for them. And they may not even like that to hear it because they just want to be where their friends were going, okay? But if their friends are not highly sensitive or don't have anxiety, maybe they can have that kind of a large school with less individualized attention and sensitivity to every nuance. But we keep on trying. We need more schools. Mm. And we need more schools. I think, that's a very for, good, I think that's a very good distinction that you're making there. That, you know, you're talking about the average, or we've discussed there isn't really an average, but we're not talking about somebody that's necessarily struggling or is highly sensitive and really needs to have a very um, specific kind of program that's geared for them. We need more of those. I think we need less yeshivas for mitzvahim and more yeshivas for the average or the more like below average, the the one that's struggling there. Because I'm actually or how about or how about just mainstream smaller yeshivas that have 75 girls in a grade, not 180. Right. Right. I, I think that those right. things are happening and they are, uh, you know, there's, there's so many issues like, you know, like teachers are not paid well enough. Um, there's so many other, you know, parts to this whole picture. Teachers are not appreciated. It is not a lot of uh, work. Um, it's not a line of work that is being, um, <laughs> you know, encouraged for Recognize us to, to come rewarded. And rewarded. It's not something that, oh, you're a teacher. Really? Oh, you're, 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 you're a Manaho. Oh, you're a, you're a, you know, like a Rebbe. Really? Oh, 
where that like that where's where we should be focusing more and giving attention to and putting all of our money into and this is the future of this is the next generation like this is the most important thing we need to be pouring our resources into them and unfortunately we're not so there's a lot of variables that are happening here and and also with you know the all, people talking about unconditional love which I'm and gentle parenting all this different approaching to parenting which I actually am a big advocate of at the same time in the classroom, it looks very different. And it's really hard to implement these ideas when you're a teacher of 25 plus students. It's really hard to give that individual. You need a lot more staff. You need a lot more hands on deck to create that kind of an environment in your yeshiva, in your school. But at the same time, we need to keep trying. We need to keep on, that should be the benchmark where we want to reach. Like, you know, like we said about our students, we have to reach high. We have to not give up. We can't say this is just what it is. I, I, I don't want to hear it anymore from parents saying, well, this is this is the schools that we have. So this is what we're doing. No, we need to be trying harder. And as parents, as educators, we all need, need to be doing our part. Um, I think that's that's an important piece to, to mention. I also want to say something in regard to um, what you said before about teachers not being paid well, teachers not being appreciated enough. If we streamline our classes, we're going to need less teachers because more teachers will be coming in daily, right? What happens to all these teachers that devoted their whole life to teaching and, and worked with a lot of Messiris Nefesh and low pay? What are they now? Just, you know, disposable people? We, just like we have to care for the future of our students, we also have to think about the future of these people who invested their lives in the school. You know, yeshivas are always strapped for money, so there's no pensions, there's no life insurances, policies, and this is a really, really painful thing that if you're teaching there and this is your parnasa, how, how, how can you just be let go? Okay, and, but on the other hand, if, if it's not what the students need, we cannot sacrifice the students for the sake of right. that person either. It's a really, really sensitive, sensitive situation. Right, because then you have teachers that don't belong in the classroom anymore and are past their prime or in yeshivas that are, they are, they are worlds and planets apart from where the Bahram are at. And it's time to, for, to create, you know, a space for new, new blood and young blood. But we also have to respect the fact, like you said, there was a lot of mysterious nefesh there. Like there, there, there has to exactly. be some kind of plan for that as well. Well, we're not going to, we're not going to be able to figure everything out tonight. <laughs> yeah. But this one piece that we really wanted to, to kind of talk about here was this idea of really reaching higher and not lowering the standard, but rather bringing the student higher, giving them more tools to understand being creating a, a more a positive environment where we believe in the student and help them see themselves in a more positive way. And then, bring them up to the subject rather than lower the subject. And parents being cognizant of, of children's abilities and being proud of whatever they can do. If it's a B, if it's a C, who cares? If they're trying their best and that's what they get, they get the same accolades as a person who gets an A. So we want to see more ice cream parties happening for C's. If that's what they, if they worked for that seat, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know how many students with A's that didn't work for it? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't. Okay. It came to them naturally. They didn't that's work for it. That they have an yeah. easy. And, yeah. then that, and then that student, you know, I, I'll finish off. I have students who come into my class. They're used to getting A's. 
And all of a sudden they find out that there's 70s or 80 students and they're horrified. They're so horrified. They feel humiliated, disappointed. Like, and I tell them before I give back their first exam in the 70s is good. In the 80s is very good. Very, very good. Do not think that a mark in the 80s is a bad mark. But if you're used to getting that A, then that 80 is like a, a lightning bolt. Yeah. Well, any final words that you'd like to share before we close this conversation? I, I think that as we enter the new year, everybody should put their best foot forward, do the best they can in the situation they're in. That's all we're asking. We're not asking you to do something. We're not asking somebody to climb Mount Everest who cannot climb. But the mountains that they can climb feel really good when you get to the top. Yes. Let's create more opportunities. Let's create more opportunities for our children to feel that that delicious taste of success, that accomplishment, exactly. that feeling of accomplishing something. And if, and if that child is not able to do that in a school environment, do it somewhere else, even with a, with a skill, with an outside skill, like you said, crocheting or something with their hands, another with a musical instrument, art, whatever it is to give that child that feeling, because that is the feeling that's going to help increase better mental health in that child. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank and you if so you do it as a family, time. if you do it as a family, then, you know, what do they say? The family that prays together stays together. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, I, like I always say, dancing on the kitchen floor while you're washing the dishes from Shabbos, best therapy. Yeah. Everybody. Put your phones down, anyway. put some music on and start dancing with our kids. Okay. I should go put my phone down and go dance with my kids. Okay. Okay. Now that we finished our conversation with Mrs. Esty Kugel, I'd like to move along to hearing our therapist's point of view. And I sit down with Catherine Beatty, who is a licensed clinical social worker. She happens to be a family friend of mine as well, who I trust dearly and have gone to for advice over the years. She's a great therapist and she works with teens. And I don't think working with teens can be easy for people and she's really good at it. And she can be quite effective and helpful. So I love to hear her insight and to see what her take on all of this is. And so we're gonna sit down and hear what Catherine has to say. All right, here it goes. So first of all, thank you so much, Catherine, for being willing to come on to a positive podcast and have this conversation with me. I feel sure. blessed to have our friendship and our working relationship that we have. And so I'm really grateful that you were willing to come on and talk about this topic with me. I appreciate that. Yeah. So as I mentioned prior, we just finished a conversation with a teacher that I, I just finished a conversation with a teacher discussing anxiety, specifically school-related anxiety. And I have some questions that we'd love to get, you know, the point of view of a therapist. So sure. one of the big conversations that we had, like our big, the main thing we talked about was we kind of delved into a complex concept that appears to be a catch-22. So when teenagers grapple with depression, anxiety, or school-related anxiety specifically, the typical approach has been to reduce their workload or provide accommodations, which you know, in some ways can be beneficial, but in some ways cannot be beneficial. And I'll explain because 
The rationale behind this is that combating anxiety and depression requires fostering self-efficacy and a sense of accomplishment within that team. And having a purpose or meaning, right, we know this can significantly enhance one's life. So in light of this, I'd like to hear your perspective. Do you believe that there's validity in the notion that except for students who have specific learning disabilities um, and those needs need to be very much taken into consideration, we should kind of avoid extensive accommodations across the board and instead equip students with the tools that they need to navigate these challenges. Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this idea. Sure. Um, so we know from research that there's a very direct link between avoidance behaviors and symptoms of anxiety, right? Um, you know, and this is part of the cognitive behavioral theory uh, as it relates actually to depression and to anxiety. And we know that as um, kids, adolescents, and adults, as we engage in avoidance behaviors, because we have an anxious response, um, that then leads to negative self-talk. We feel worse about ourselves. Then the, in, the, the anxiety increases. And as a result, it becomes a negative feedback loop where we further avoid behaviors because we're experiencing some internal distress. Um, you know, the evidence-based treatment for anxiety and especially for panic attack in particular is exposure therapy. Because the idea is that the more you tolerate the distress that comes up, the greater your tolerance will become. And so the less, the less anxiety provoking with whatever circumstance or situation you're faced with, uh, the less anxiety provoking it'll be. Um, and, you know, as a parent, it's, you know, it's hard to watch your child suffer. Uh, and there are certainly folks who have a higher internal baseline for arousal, which is what we think of as anxiety. And, you know, so there are many adolescents who, who have a higher internal baseline for what we think of as anxiety, you know, from, from birth on, um, you know, and, and it's hard to watch them feel anxious. Uh, I think you know the automatic pull as a parent is to to decrease their distress, right? And right. Um, unfortunately, it's counterproductive when we when we sort of try to just pull them out of the situation that's anxiety provoking. Right. So I guess you're saying that you kind of agree with what and the research absolutely kind of <laughs> as well. Okay. So let me just let's let's take this a little deeper. So this is the question. So if you have a child who um, doesn't want to go to school because it's anxiety producing, right? Where does a parent say, well, this is what we have to do. And where is the point where we say, okay, this isn't working for this child and we need to figure something else out. Like, where's that line? How, how do we, how do we know when that time or what's the, like, cause it really is nuanced. It's really specific to each case. And I, I'm sure you're going to tell me that <laughs> I'm, I'm just, if you can give us as parents that are listening, some some information and, and ideas of what we should be doing to help keep that balance. Sure. Um, so for the vast majority of kids and, and adolescents, we've seen from the pandemic that it is um, unhelpful to spend time at home in isolation. Um, you know, rates across the board 
went up for mental health uh, disorders, mental health symptoms during the pandemic. And, you know, uh, sort of distress tolerance skills went way down. Now, sure, it's, it's, it's nuanced depending on the kid. And there are certainly appropriate accommodations for specific disorders, autism spectrum, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. Generally speaking, with anxiety, the task as a parent is to validate that anxiety is normal, it's a biological function of our autonomic nervous system, and that everybody experiences anxiety. You know, there's, there's nothing we can do to completely eliminate it. And so it's really about making space for being uncomfortable, you know, and teaching our children how to use feeling words, how to verbalize what their internal emotional experience is. And so when they're feeling nervous about going to school, a lot of the time this will come out as physical symptoms, you know, maybe gastrointestinal distress or headaches or, you know, malaise. Um, when you can help them learn to verbalize what the feeling is, you then have an opportunity to make it okay to feel that feeling. So if you have a kiddo who is experiencing anxiety, it's about giving them the language. You're feeling anxious. It's okay to feel anxious. We don't have to like the things that we feel uncomfortable with. Um, we do sort of, as a matter of being human in the world and interacting with other human beings, we do have to learn how to tolerate things that are uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that's a sort of a developmental lifespan um, task. You know, everybody's faced with having to tolerate uncomfortable things. Yeah. So how can parents create a safe space for their teens or their younger children to discuss their school related, you know, their school related anxieties without judgment. Like what, what do parents need to keep in mind? That they don't have to fix it. <laughs> they Ooh. don't have to fix it. Yeah. Well, it's, you sure? you know, <laughs> <laughs> as a parent, we have just an immediate put on the fix it hat, right? Um, oh, you don't have to feel anxious. There's nothing to feel anxious about. Well, actually, you know, if you, if you think about the situation of going to school, maybe with new students you haven't met before in a new place, there are many things to feel anxious about. And instead of validating, we invalidate when we tell our kids, don't feel this, feel that, or there's no reason to feel X, Y, and Z. It's really just about saying, yeah, you feel anxious. It's okay to feel anxious. Feelings pass. They pass after we let ourselves experience them. And it's not, it's not about avoiding. Uh, and so parents, it's really about learning how to make uh, sort of intrapersonal boundaries, the boundaries that you keep for yourself internally in terms of what you will do as a parent versus what you won't do as a parent. Because if we pull our kids out of every uncomfortable situation, ultimately the lesson becomes if you're uncomfortable, then you just avoid it. I mean, and imagine all of the uncomfortable situations <laughs> we would avoid in life. Um, you know, you step outside of your home, there are many anxiety provoking situations on a daily basis. And so rather than sort of modeling avoidance, it's a lot more helpful to encourage resilience. Yeah, you feel anxious and you can still do this. You know, feeling anxious doesn't have to stop you from doing something. And then once they get through the experience of feeling anxious, tolerating the distress, and they can get to the other side of engaging in whatever it was they were considering avoiding, they then have a sense of mastery. 
And then you start building a history you can look back on. Remember when you went to kindergarten, it was uncomfortable and then it got better. Remember when you went to sixth grade and you changed schools, that was uncomfortable. This is the same thing. And this, you know, this is something that uh, folks experience these life transitions <laughs> many, many times. I mean, I see this with college students who are transitioning after their senior year. You know, there's anxiety about being in the, the quote unquote real world. Um, it's the same anxiety you experience when you go to kindergarten for the first time. Right. So I, what I'm hearing you say is that parents need to learn how to deal with their own discomfort around their child's discomfort. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's uncomfortable. And I would say the same thing that I say to my kiddos. It's okay to feel uncomfortable, you know, um, as parents, as much as we want to fix everything, we enable dependence when we fix everything. There are situations where it's better for our kids to learn how to tolerate. Right. So you work with teens and I find that uh, teens are really difficult, or I would say, I don't like to use the word difficult, but challenging group to work with because it takes a long time to create self-awareness. They, they lack some time. I mean, some of them have great self-awareness, but some, most teens, I would say, have a difficult time really seeing the whole picture and really having their own self-awareness. What would you say, in your experience, what are, what are things that teens can do if they're listening in that they can, that they can do to help alleviate some of their own um, school-related anxiety? Sure. Uh, lots of research shows nutrition, sleep, and exercise. Those three things impact mood significantly. You have to get enough sleep, you have to eat nutritiously, and you have to engage in some exercise. Those just promote mental health, um, you know, and an overall sense of well being. Um, unfortunately, adolescence is a time of uh, remarkable brain development. And so there are all these neural pathways that are being created and trimmed and, um, and just rapid brain development. Unfortunately for parents and to a certain extent for adolescents, uh, the amygdala, which is a, a kidney bean sized part of the brain, um, is still heavily influential and, and it controls our emotional responses to things. And so because teenagers are not fully using executive functioning, um, they will often have emotional responses that are very automatic. And so the more they can kind of learn to stop and reflect on what their emotional experience is in the moment and then verbalize it to themselves and to somebody else, the better, you know? talking to their friends about feeling anxious. I mean, social anxiety in particular is extremely common, uh, you know, even more so since the pandemic. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's really normal to feel like everybody's looking at you. So normal, in fact, uh, that we have a, a phrase for it in psychology, it's, it's called the imaginary audience. And it's, a, it's the phenomena where everybody during their teenage years believes everybody else is looking at them, um, even though they're not. <laughs> my, mm -hmm. I have two, two daughters myself, 18 and 21 now. And I remember when my younger daughter was, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 
she wouldn't <laughs> she wouldn't let me drive her around with the radio playing loudly because somebody might see. Well, you know, nobody's looking. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're so concerned with how others perceive them at that age. Um, so talking out loud about it with their friends, with their parents, with other adults that they trust, you can say, yeah, you know, there were many times I felt uncomfortable. Um, and it gets better because it does get better, right? I mean, my experience during my 20s, my 30s, my early 40s is that it really does get better. Um, you know, so reminding our teenagers that it's not always going to feel like this. Right. The issue is, is that most teenagers are not getting enough sleep. They're not getting good mm -hmm. nutrition and they're spending way too much time on their phones. Um, and that's just a vicious cycle of, you know, not helping their own mental health. And that, that I think is playing obviously a big role, but they know this already. We don't need to tell them. I feel like they, they know it better than even than us. Um, they understand it. Um, I can see that they, they come to a point where they're like, I, I need to get away from my phone. Like, it's like they put it away and they'll, I need to go for a walk, right? I need to do something different. So I think they know this. Um, are there any specific techniques or mindfulness exercises that you would recommend or activities that parents and teens can practice together or on their own to, you know, to help alleviate um, some of this school-related anxiety? Uh, they can get through the first few days. It gets easier. It's that exposure, you know, they can just get through the first few days, sort of sheer force of will going in and tolerating it. Um, you know, there, there are techniques for sort of decreasing um, your autonomic nervous system's response, right? Which is what controls the, the fight, uh, flight, freeze, or fawn response. Things like uh, deep breathing, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna use deep breathing as an exercise for decreasing anxiety in, you know, in any context, you wanna, you wanna breathe in to a count of three, hold for a count of two, and then breathe out for a count of five, because it's, it's actually on the out breath um, that our, our uh, physiologically, our blood pressure and our heartbeat slow, right? Because when we're feeling anxious, it's the, the sympathetic portion of the autonomic nervous system that makes our, our heart race, our blood pressure go up, our muscles tense, and all of that's in preparation for, you know, whatever the, the perceived anxiety provoking situation is. So right. some deep breathing, there are grounding techniques, you know, quick Google search, you can look up a number of different grounding techniques, visualization exercises. Grounding is a way of just using your five senses to bring yourself back to the present moment because anxiety is really, it's, uh, it's all about, it's all hypothetical and imaginary. It's all future oriented. Um, and so if you can ground yourself in the here and now and sort of bring your mind back to your body, and we can do that through a number of different ways, you know, paying attention to what we can feel, you know, what's tactile, uh, focusing on what we can see, focusing on what we hear, uh, smell is a, is a really great way of grounding because your olfactory sense is the only one that's directly connected to the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory. And so if there's a smell that you associate with a pleasant memory, you know, if you have some essential oil, that can be really helpful. Um, but it's a regular practice. Right. But to keep at it, if you want to see yes. results, it's not, it's not like a quick fix. This is not something. It's not a one and done. <laughs> right. Um, 
what about parents that have a teen or young young tween that doesn't want to go to therapy or doesn't want to find the tools and they're struggling really really hard and the parents don't want to fix as you know but they're mm-hmm. also watching their child struggle and suffer what, what would you tell these parents what would you what would you say to these parents so i would encourage the parents to start talking to a therapist uh, because you know forced therapy doesn't work it's not effective and unfortunately if we force children or adolescents to go to therapy uh, it, it's likely to create a situation where they will then not be interested in attending therapy in the future. Um, so I, I would I would definitely strongly discourage parents from trying to force kids to go to therapy because it won't be effective. There has to be a certain level of willingness. And often, you know, uh, pain and discomfort creates a, a level of willingness at a certain point, right? And so part of this is about modeling for your kids and for your adolescents that, you know, we assume responsibility for our own individual well-being, right? And if you have a kiddo that's not ready to feel better, it's okay as long as they're not in a circumstance where they're threatening their life or threatening to harm somebody else, it's okay to let them feel uncomfortable. I, I would say, you know, seek some, uh, some counseling for yourselves so that you don't have to feel as distressed about, you know, not intentionally refraining from fixing the situation for your kids. Right. Um, So getting your own support and figuring out like mm -hmm. with the help of somebody else, how to best guide this child and how in each, each scenario, hopefully. Uh, Do you have any success stories or, you know, real life examples that you can share about some of the teens that you may have worked with or that you know experienced over that have overcome some anxiety in their own life? Hmm. Probably more examples um, of success stories than I can think of to identify a specific one. Um, and right. of course I'd hesitate to give, you know, any sort of information that would uh, right. be identifiable. Um, my, my professional and personal experience with my kids, um, but my professional experience also has been usually by the time kids are transitioning from 15 to 17, you're on the upswing 13 to 15 seems to be the more challenging period of time. And I found that when you have a kiddo who is willing, they do have the willingness to participate in therapy and they are using the skills, uh, whether it's intermittently or regularly, they are using the skills, they're doing the things that they need to do to take responsibility for their own well-being. Um, they, they do improve significantly. Um, you know, for instance, I, so I'll give a personal example. My older daughter uh, was diagnosed very late with high functioning autism spectrum and she was misdiagnosed as bipolar for a long time. Um, and, she, you know, she suffers, still suffers with anxiety and depression. Uh, and there was a period of time during high school when, uh, you know, I wasn't sure that we'd make it through high school. Um, and she's now, you know, in her third year at the University of Missouri in their journalism school. And she's going to, you know, she's going to graduate. She's participating in activities. And she's fully engaged. She still experiences anxiety because we can't get rid of it. Um, 
and she tolerates it. You know, that's that's what we all have to learn how to do. Recognize when it's coming up and then just make some space for it. That that's what being mindful. That's how you that's how you engage in a mindfulness practice. Identify the feeling and make space for it. Yeah. What would you say is the school's responsibility with regard to anxiety of their students? Do they need to be taking this into account with regard to testing and and different finals that are coming up or midterms or you know, do they need to be taking into account that students today have higher levels of anxiety than they did five years ago or 10 years ago? Should they be accommodating the students and making changes? Well, I sure wish they would. There's there's a lot about uh, institutionalized education and, and the entire system that I would change. I mean, the first right. thing is nobody should be going to school during their adolescent years starting at 7 a.m. I mean, um, yes, you know, there, there, there are a lot of changes that should be made. I will say that um, if if a school system has the capacity to accommodate for anxiety, that would be wonderful because we know research shows anxiety significantly impairs memory and specifically access to long-term memory uh, and, and being able to hold things in working memory. And so, you know, if you have a kiddo who's feeling super anxious about taking, for instance, um, an IQ test, if they're feeling anxious because they're sitting with a psychologist that they've never met before and they're uncomfortable, you know, it's entirely possible that they will significantly underperform compared to how they would perform if they were in a situation where they weren't experiencing anxiety, testing anxiety or anxiety around the person administering the test uh, makes a big difference. And so, you know, if a, if a school can accommodate um, for symptoms of anxiety, I would encourage them to do so simply because anxiety does impair memory. And so sometimes it can be really helpful for kids just to have an extended period of time during a test. Um, I, I would not encourage schools to sort of like eliminate public speaking or anything like that, because again, you know, that's a, it's an example of exposure and it's important to learn how to tolerate it. Right. So when you're saying accommodations, you're saying specifically with like per perhaps um, giving that student the leeway to take a walk if they need to, or go to the bathroom, wash their face or extend the, the test time. But you're not saying that we need to dumb down the material or lower the standard or um, kind of bring down the level but rather exactly. bring the students to the level. Right, exactly. Same same accommodate, similar accommodations um, that, that are often made for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Right. My final question, what is something that you thought you knew really well about anxiety years ago? And then after all these years of working <laughs> with teens and young adults and you've changed your opinion on? So I think after all of these years, what I've realized is how important emotional vocabulary is. Um, you know, anxiety is on the spectrum of fear. And looking back in my life, I can see that I experienced anxiety as far back as I can remember, but I never had language for identifying it and then verbalizing it to anybody. And there are lots of kids and adolescents who walk around in that. Um, you know, and that's a, that's a tough way to live. The more we can give vocabulary and language and teach kids how to identify their internal emotional experience, the better they'll be able to tolerate it. Um, 
yeah, I think that's that's probably the biggest piece I've learned over the last the last several years. Vocabulary and verbal expression makes a huge difference. Yeah, giving language to things gives us the ability to express ourselves and gives us the ability to really share what we're dealing with. And then then comes in the part about being able to find the support that we need and get that because if we're not able to verbalize or have the language, then we can't communicate. And communication is the first step. Asking yeah, for help. and it's often it's often as as simple as receiving validation in the form of someone else witnessing for you, just witnessing your emotional experience and saying that's a normal experience. That's okay for you to feel that way. I think that's great. This has been so helpful. I'm sure lots of people will gain a lot from it. So thank you again for your time. Well, anytime. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found today's episode to be insightful and you've learned a thing or two. I'd love to hear your feedback and any questions or comments. You can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. And if you could take a moment and like our episode or share this episode or leave a comment or rating, it just makes it easier for people to find our podcast. It's easy. It takes a moment and it's very effective. So thank you so much for listening and have a great day.